I see the fans going already. I haven't even started preaching yet. When I was a child, my mother would occasionally cook dinner in a contraption known as a pressure cooker. A pressure cooker. It was a heavy stainless steel pot with a lid that fastened down and a seal that allowed her to to put my New England boiled dinner in there. Cabbage, corned beef, and potatoes. A little bit of liquid. Turn on the heat. And let the steam begin to accumulate under that lid. Because it was an airtight seal, the steam would be under pressure and could be heated to a hotter temperature than just the boiling point of water. And it would cook the food more quickly than if it was boiled in an open pot. It made the meat more tender. But all good pressure cookers have a little safety valve, a little release valve, because there's always the concern if the pressure grows too high, you'll blow that thing wide open, and that would make a mess. Well, the world today, I think, can be likened to a pressure cooker. The lid is sealed on tight, the heat is up full, and the pressure is building, the steam is building inside the pot. And I'm not sure there is a relief valve in sight. The center of the pressure of this world is the nation of Israel. I don't believe there's any doubt about that. I went on the internet Friday afternoon and gathered together here a few news headlines concerning the nation of Israel. These were all posted and current and relevant as of Friday, July 17th, 2009. Just listen to some of these headlines. Qassam hits southern Israel. That was one headline. Another, soldier attacked in Tel Aviv. Another headline. Captured Arab youth admitted planning Hebron attack. Another, Israel, dateline. Iran and Syria continuing to send weapons to Hezbollah. Another, IDF, Israeli Defense Force, headline. Hezbollah hiding rockets in homes. Another headline. 150 new immigrants arrive in Israel from Sao Paulo. Another headline. Palestinians resume official activities in Jerusalem. Another headline. Dateline, Germany. Iran could have atomic bomb within six months. Another headline. Israel will test arrow interceptor in Pacific Ocean. These are just a few headlines from the news two days ago. Beloved, whoever, listen to me, whoever can solve the problem between Israel and her neighbors will have the whole world eating out of their hand. Whoever it is that can resolve the tension in the Middle East, whoever it is that can act as a pressure valve to release the buildup in the Middle East will have the world bowing at their feet and eating out of their hand. And the Scripture is very, very clear 
that there will be such an individual. And his name is Antichrist. Antichrist. Open your Bibles to the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel 7, I guess, for a place to land would be good. Page 891, if you're using a pew Bible, Daniel 7. You probably noticed that we included in your bulletin for you this week my sermon notes from last week and this. So that doesn't mean you can get up and go home. You still have to sit and listen. But I have included, basically, for you, the notes that I brought into the pulpit both last week and this. Several people have asked me about that. They said there's so much information to write down and that dinky little place on the back of the bulletin just doesn't cut the mustard. So could you do something for me? So this is my attempt to do something for you, Zach. Your best critics are always related to you. Well, they say keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer, right? What does that have to do with anything? I've also expanded now to four Old Testament prophecies. I didn't intend to preach the book of Daniel, and I don't think I really am, but we are having to look at it because the book of Daniel is the Old Testament book we have to go to to understand the rise of the Antichrist. This is the place where God gives the fullest revelation of who this character is. So there are four Old Testament prophecies that are critical for our understanding of Antichrist. So that we'll begin to remove some of the confusion regarding this wicked and vicious individual. As I said to you last time, the book of Daniel records a series of prophecies that essentially repeat in ever-increasing detail the same basic theme, the same basic message. And that is they reveal what is going to happen from Daniel's day until the return of Messiah to establish his kingdom. The point of reference is, of course, Israel. They were given to a Jewish prophet for his people. So it is reference to Israel and the events surrounding Israel. So, of course, it doesn't handle every single country that ever exists in the history of the world. People that came to me last week and said, well, what about in South America? And my answer is, I have a foggiest idea what happens in South America. God didn't concern himself to reveal to us things like South America. God was concerned with his home, with his, the homeland of his ancient people, Israel, and the prophecies surround Israel. But... Because Israel is the navel of the world, it is the apple of God's eye, it is the pupil, as it were, of God's eye, that what happens in Israel spills out and affects every other country of the earth, including South America. So Daniel gives us these prophecies, and they increase in detail. Each prophecy builds on and adds to the prior prophecies and build a composite picture of, the history of the world, and in particular, a composite account or picture of this man, Antichrist. Last time we spent some time looking at chapter 2, and there we observed the, the statue that was given in a vision to Nebuchadnezzar, a statue made of four shiny metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, 
This was, we noted four world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, in that order, descending down through the statues. And that primarily it was to look at those four empires from man's point of view. They are shiny and they are metallic and they are hard and they are appealing. So that is, if you will, man's view of these four world empires. This great statue, of course, was crushed by a stone cut without hands that became a mountain and filled the earth. A fifth kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, the one that brings to an end all pretender kingdoms. We then spent a long time in Daniel chapter 7 looking at another vision there of four ferocious beasts. We noted last time these beasts are the same four kingdoms that were first given in the, in the statue of, of Nebuchadnezzar and that now we're looking at them as it were from God's point of view. They are not shiny and appealing. They are ferocious beasts seeking to ravage and devastate God's chosen people. These four beasts, the same ones, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. We noticed again in chapter 7 of Daniel's prophecy that the final beast, Rome, was never conquered as the other empires, each one consuming the one coming before it. But Rome, as it were, melted away only to be revived again at the end of time via a ten-horned empire out of which rises an eleventh horn that takes dominion over this revived Roman Empire, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. And this little horn himself in Daniel 7, we are shown, is crushed by Messiah's kingdom at the end of the age. This is all review for you. It's all there in the CD or online from last week, and it's in written form in that handout, including, I might say with a measure of small pride, a picture And if you knew how much time it took me to put that picture in there, you would have a sense of gratitude. (laughs) And I got so carried away, I put two more. (laughs) Because a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So there it all is, the first... Two pages, I think it is, concern all of that that we looked at last week. So we're carrying forward now. We were looking at at Daniel's prophetic panorama in chapter 7. Now we move forward to new and further visions given to Daniel here in chapter 8. Daniel's visionary villain. Daniel's visionary villain. Yes, I did work at that. Daniel's visionary villain. Now, the beginning part of, the, of Daniel's prophecies, actually beginning in chapter 1, verse, run, verse 1, running all the way through chapter 2 and in verse 4, were written in Hebrew. And at that point, the book changes to Aramaic, one of the three languages of, of the Bible, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Aramaic portions of the Scriptures are very small in number, but there is a significant Aramaic portion here in Daniel's prophecy, beginning in verse 5, chapter 2, and running all the way through chapter 7, written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a Gentile language. And I believe that God used 
Daniel to write in Aramaic or record his prophecies here in Aramaic because the prophecies through chapter 7 concern primarily the Gentile world or the times of the Gentiles. And it's here in chapter 8 of Daniel's prophecy and carrying through the rest of the book that the language switches back to Hebrew from Aramaic. And the reason it switches back, the reason it reverts, is because in in Daniel's increasingly detailed focus, it is now coming to bear upon the nation of Israel primarily. And so the language is written in their mother tongue, Hebrew. Chapter 8 follows chapter 7. Great observation. It actually follows chapter 7 by about three years. And it gives some specific information regarding the little horn that arises to persecute the Jews. Chapter 7 introduces this character, the little horn, who we've noted is Antichrist. Chapter 8 gives more detailed information with regard to this end-time character. Now, in chapter 8... The little horn grows out of the kingdom of Greece. You can see that in verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, and the uh, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent the four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, although not with his power, and in a later period of their rule, when transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. Or up to verse 9, out of... One of them came a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great, and so forth. We'll talk about this in a minute. But I just want to observe for you, the little horn that is introduced here in chapter 8 is not the same personage as the little horn of chapter 7, and that confuses people. There is a little horn in chapter 7. The little horn of chapter 7 is Antichrist, and it is an end-time prophecy. The little horn here in chapter 8 grows out of a different empire, not out of Rome, like the little horn of chapter 7, but out of Greece, here in chapter 8, the little horn growing out of the kingdom of Greece. Why does God reveal this to Daniel? Who cares and why so confusing? The answer is, is that the little horn of chapter 8 is a historical person who has come and lived and died, and his career acts as a picture for the, the future little horn to arise and persecute Israel. So by looking at the historic personage in chapter 8, the little horn of chapter 8, we will learn much about the future coming little horn of chapter 7. Does that make sense? Chapter 8 deals with a, a man by the name of Antiochus the fourth, or Antiochus Epiphanes, as he is known to history. Epiphanes means the illustrious one. Antiochus the fourth, named Epiphanes. His rise to power is given in great detail, prophetic detail, in Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 to 35. We'll look at it next week, although I'm not going to get lost in the details, I hope. But chapter 8 introduces him in a, in a general sense. So with this as background, let me read here for you about the reign of Daniel's visionary villain, 
and we'll make some comments with regard to it. Now, maybe one other historical note just for you is that these visions concern the history of the nation of Israel during what's known as the 400 silent years. This is the history, this is what happened to the people of God, to the nation of Israel between the time that the Old Testament closed with Malachi until it opens again with Matthew during these 400 silent years. A lot of stuff happened. Prophetically, Daniel reveals some of what it is that will happen subsequent to him has happened from our point of view. Okay, here we go. Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, so this would be 551 B.C., Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, that is chapter 7. Daniel, by the way, is about 70 years old at this point. And I looked in the vision, and it came about that while I was looking, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were longer, or were long rather, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Maybe I'll slip you over to verse 20. We'll interpret it as we go. Verse 20, same chapter. The ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. I'll just stay while we're here. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, the large horn, first king. Okay, back to the earlier part of the chapter. Two horns, one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. This refers to the to the empire of Persia, which ultimately became predominant. Persia being Iran, modern Iran, became dominant over the kingdom of Media. That's why it is the longer of the two ram's horns. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. This is speaking of the expansion of the Medo-Persian Empire, which, as I told you last time, went from India all the way through to the edge of, of Europe, really. It conquered all the way through Turkey or Asia Minor and south into Egypt. It was a massive world empire. This budding westward, northward, and southward probably is a reference to the expansion of that empire under Cyrus the king. The prophet continues, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That is, the idea here is he was moving very quickly. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And we noted the horn between his eyes is its first king, Alexander. This is Alexander the Great. He is the one who unified the Greek city-states into an empire and began to move against Medo-Persia. He's coming from the west, that is, he's coming from Greece. And he is butting up against the Medo-Persian empire. Alexander's army was small, it was cavalry-based, and it was very ferocious and quick. As opposed to the Medo-Persian army, which was massive, it was primarily infantry-based, and it was poorly trained. So a small, fast, ferocious fighting force in Alexander the Great was able to push back the might of the Medo-Persian Empire. 
Verse 6, and he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. This may be reference to what is known to history as the Battle of Golgama. Golgama. It was a battle that occurred in 331 B.C. It was the decisive battle by which Alexander the Great shattered the might of the Medo-Persian Empire. It is studied to this day by military tacticians. It is brilliant in its execution. It was fought on a battlefield of of Darius's, the king of Medo-Persia, of his own choosing. He had actually leveled the battlefield to prepare it for his chariots. It was going to be a slaughter. Some historians think he had as many as 500,000 troops at his disposal against the army of Alexander that ranged somewhere between thirty-five to 57,000. So you can see that it was an amazingly one-sided battle, 10 to 1. Medo-Persians against the Greeks. Yet Alexander shattered the armies of Darius there at the Battle of Gaugama. And three days later, Darius III was assassinated by his own generals. And at that point, Alexander assumed the the empire of Medo-Persia. Verse 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Do you remember the same thing happened last time? The four-headed leopard. Do you remember that? Okay. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn or a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the beautiful land, which would be a reference to Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? In other words, how long is this going to go on? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. After Alexander shattered the Persian Empire and pushed all the way through the Khyber Pass and into India, his troops would go no further and they were far enough from their homeland. They basically said, this far and no further, we must turn back. They turned back and they made their way back towards Babylon. He lost many along the way, himself dying in Babylon at the age of 33. When he died, his empire, having had no male heir, no successor that had been named, his empire, after much internal strife, was shattered and divided into four empires. Four generals assumed control of the portions of this massive empire. 
One controlled Macedonia, which would be basically Greece. Another controlled Asia Minor, which would be Turkey. Another Syria and another Egypt. These were the four generals that controlled what was left of Alexander's empire. One of those generals gave birth through a, a, or through a series of, of offspring and so forth to this man by the name of Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the eighth Seleucid king. These were called the Seleucids who ruled in Syria. He was the eighth in the line of kings descending from Alexander's general. He reigned from 175 to 163 B.C. So you can see we move forward in time, right? Verse 1, in the third year, it's 551. The reign of Antiochus Epiphanes was, begins in 175. So we've moved forward in time. It's prophetic. His reign was absolutely brutal, and it is recounted in detail in First and Second Maccabees. First and Second Maccabees. They are what's known as apocryphal apocryphal books. That is, they are non-canonical. They are not part of Holy Scripture. They are not inspired of God. But they are nonetheless books that are very interesting for what they tell us historically. They were written in the three centuries leading up to the birth of Christ. And so 1st and 2nd Maccabees speaks in detail about the reign of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. He hated the nation of Israel. He hated the Jews. He was Greek. He hated the Jews, and he hated them because they refused to adopt Greek culture and Greek ways. You remember Alexander, as he conquered the world, he laid Greek culture everywhere he went in Greek language, which paved the way for the New Testament written in Greek to be able to move throughout the world. The Jews were stubbornly refusing to adopt Greek culture and Greek ways, and this infuriated this man Antiochus Epiphanes to no end, and so he was determined to force the Jews to become Greeks. And what he did was he stationed a garrison of soldiers in Jerusalem. He banned all legitimate sacrifices, that is, all Jewish sacrifices. He banned circumcision, and he banned the observance of all holy days. So he directly attempted to dismantle the the religion of Judaism. He instituted pagan sacrifices, pagan practices, and he applied the death penalty to all who would not adopt Greek culture and abandon Jewish culture. Maccabees tells us about amazing things, hanging children by their necks and executing parents and all kinds of horrible atrocities that he brought upon the people of Israel because they refused to adopt the Greek ways and tried to to maintain the ways of their fathers, the true worship of God. It all came to a head in 167 B.C. when he set up the image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and he slaughtered a pig on the altar the most offensive animal to Jewish sensibilities. And, of course, setting up Zeus there in the Holy of Holies was what Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. The setting up of the statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and the slaughtering of a pig on the altar. That was the ultimate defilement of the most holy place for the people of God. During his cruel rule, many, many Jews weakly gave in. 
That is, they would no longer worship the God of their fathers. They would give in to to Greek culture, Greek pressure, adopt Greek ways. And so Judaism was under tremendous pressure of being exterminated. There was an aged priest, an old man who was a priest by the name of Mattathias. He refused to participate and actually took a knife and killed one of the Greek soldiers. And then he and his sons gathered together and they launched what is known as the Maccabean Revolt or the Maccabean Wars, which were wars of independence for Israel. All of this occurs historically during these 400 silent years. So back to Daniel 8, where it says... That he caused, verse 10, some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and he trampled them. He's talking about Israel here. The host, the stars, these are references to the people of Israel. For example, Genesis chapter 15, 5, Exodus chapter 12, verse 41. You can see cross-references that would help you make that identification. Beyond that, he trampled down the holy place, as it says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. About six, a little over six years. The holy place was properly restored, verse 14, December 14th in the year 164 B.C. When the temple was cleaned by Judas Maccabeus and the Feast of Hanukkah or Feast of Lights was instituted and it is celebrated in Israel even to this day. That is a celebration of the of the purification of the altar and the restoration of Jewish worship, the Feast of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights. That, is the, that marks the end of these 2,300 evenings and mornings. Picking up in verse 15, the ruin of this evil villain. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. This is the angel Gabriel. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. That is, I'm going to give you an interpretation of the, of the vision. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. And the broken horn and the four horns that arise in its place represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And in the latter period of their rule, that is, the eighth Seleucid king, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. This king is insolent and skilled in intrigue. That is, he is a bold-faced liar and he is a smooth talker. He's a master of deceit. These are historically true of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a, he was a liar, yet he was a, he was a smooth talker and a master of deceit. And I can't resist. In today's vernacular, he would be a skilled politician. OK? 
Okay? He would be a skilled politician. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. That is, it'll, it'll be satanically inspired. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And, though his shrewdness, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. The character of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, was a man of wicked character. He is insolent and skilled in intrigue. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. His reign over the nation of Israel, over the people of Israel, was brutal. He attempted to destroy them to an extraordinary degree, it says, verse 24. He was an arrogant man, a man of arrogant pride. He, he even opposed the prince of princes. That is, he opposed God. He set up a statue of Zeus in the holy place. He slaughtered a pig. He set himself directly in opposition to the God of Israel. And according to verse 25, he will be broken without human agency. Historians tell us Antiochus died from a combination of insanity and a disease of the bowels in 163 B.C. God struck this man dead. So what's the point? The point is that by looking at this man's brutal reign, we can learn something about the reign of the greater one to come at the end of the age. God gave this prophecy to his people, Israel, for two reasons. Number one, to prepare them for the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, and also that they might learn from his brutal reign what the future Antichrist reign will look like as well. He's a picture of the one to come. So by studying him and his life, and what, how he operated, we learn much about the one to come who will be a, a far greater, far more wicked ruler than he. That moves us to the third of four prophecies. Chapter 9. And again, remember, what God is doing for us is he's giving us increasingly clear detail. We know... Four nations arise, right? We know the fourth one is Rome, the most ferocious of them all. We know that it is not consumed by any other empire, but that it it falls away into history to be revived again at the end. We know that the end form of it will have ten toes or ten horns. That is, there will be ten contemporaneous rulers within that empire. We also know that there will be an eleventh that will rise up, will tear out three horns by the roots, as it will, that is, will overpower three of those rulers, and will set himself up as the one ruling the revived Roman Empire at the end of the days, this one called Little Horn or Antichrist. We know that his reign is crushed by the return of Messiah's kingdom. That's all Daniel chapter 7. We know in Daniel chapter 8 that historically a man did come on the scene arising from out of the kingdom of Greece 
Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted the nation of Israel brutally, even opposing God to the place where he defiled the Holy of Holies. He was a murderer. He was a, he was a man who was a liar. He was skilled in intrigue. He, he ruled in a brutal reign over the nation, and he sought to exterminate the people of Israel. What we learn from that is that this is a, this is a picture of that future one to come and gives us an idea of how brutal his reign will be and what kind of a man he will be. What kind of a man can rise to take dominion over the world? This is the kind of man it will be. Daniel chapter 9. Add some more details. The events in Daniel chapter 9 occur in the year 539 B.C., 12 years after the prophecy of chapter 8. So 12 years have expired, and now Daniel is given more information, which he thankfully passes on to us. It is in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, verse 1. The Babylonian Empire by this time has now been overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. So Daniel is living in the midst of his own prophecy now. The empire has been overthrown by the combined forces of the Medo-Persians. That's Belshazzar's dream, Daniel chapter 5. And so Daniel is now living in the midst of his own prophecy. He is evidently moved by the momentous events that are, that are circling around him. I mean, the Babylonian Empire, which conquered Israel and carried them into captivity, has now fallen, has now been conquered. The silver has come, the gold has gone. The bear has come, the lion has fallen. And so he goes to the Scriptures and he begins to search the Scriptures. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book's the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel discerns that something is going on here. Something is happening. God is moving. And so he goes back to the word of God, searches the prophets to see what it means. And there in the prophecies of Jeremiah, specifically chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, he finds his his answer. The prophet writes there, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans. I will make it an everlasting desolation. Babylon has now fallen. Medo-Persia has consumed their empire. Daniel says, Whoa, 70 years must be close to up. So he goes to the prophets to look. The captivity, the end of it, must be close at hand. That's Daniel's observation from all of this. And so against that backdrop, he begins to pray. He knows that confession is a prerequisite to restoration, and so he begins his prayer here fasting and confessing the sin of his people. He takes them upon himself as if he personifies all of his people. And he begins with open confession before he turns to petition the Lord for deliverance of his nation. Now you can read this for yourself. Verses 3 through 14 are his confession. Verses 15 through 19 are his petition. Daniel is acting as a representative of his people. Specifically, Daniel Requests of the Lord, beginning in verse 17. I'll read 17, 18, 19 for you. 
So now, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O Lord, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel is requesting that God restore his sanctuary, his city and his people. Restore the temple, restore the city of Jerusalem, and restore the nation of Israel from their captivity. That's what he's asking. Beginning in verse 20, he gets his response. Now, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the people of Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Here it is. Seventy weeks have been decreed for you, for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There, shall, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood even to the end that there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Daniel is given a vision of the specific future of the nation of Israel. And it is known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. I'm sure you've heard that term. Daniel's 70 weeks. What are the weeks? When do they occur and what do they mean? You and I think in terms of decades. Decades, that's how we process things. Daniel and the Jews thought in terms of sevens. Their culture was oriented in terms of sevens. Seven days in a week. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. Every seventh Sabbath year was a year of Jubilee. So their whole calendar was arranged around sevens. The Hebrew word for weeks actually means sevens. And it does not designate whether we're talking about days or, or months or years. It doesn't tell us that. We have to learn that from the context. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, the prophet writes there, Literally, three sevens of days. Your English translation probably says three weeks. Literally says three sevens of days. 
That clarifies the expression there to know that he's talking about 21 days or three weeks. Here in Daniel chapter 9, when he talks about, verse 24, 70 weeks, he does not clarify what the weeks are. They're just 77s. 77s. It's 490, whatever it is. We don't know whether it's months. We don't know whether it's years without looking at the context. Now, clearly, the context begins with years back in verse 2, right? Daniel is is examining the prophecies of Jeremiah, and he's looking for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's thinking in terms of years. It is natural to assume that he is still thinking. The prophecy still relates to years here in verse 24. That's a natural thing to assume. Furthermore, it is only years that really provide sufficient time for the events of this amazing prophecy to come true. It's also important to note that the prophecy, verse 24, concerns your people and your holy city. He's talking about Israel. It's all about Israel. By the time this prophecy expires, God will accomplish six things for the nation of Israel. They're listed for you in verse 24, and we're not going to look at any of them. That's for another day. Because we're focused on Antichrist. So we've got to stay focused on Antichrist. Now, when does this all occur? Verse 25, you are to know and discern that for the, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the priest, or prince rather, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is, there will be 69 weeks total. 69 weeks of years. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem, restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given in 445 B.C. You can see that. I put it in the handout for you, I think. Nehemiah chapter 2 lays that out. So it begins with the decree of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. The clock begins to run there. The first period, the seven weeks, which is 49 years, verse 25, is the period of the restoration of the city under Nehemiah. Moving forward, then there are 62 weeks given. You see that, verse 25, then 62 weeks, or 62 weeks of years, or 434 years. 434 years. So you take the period for the restoration of the city plus the additional 62 weeks for a total of 484 years or 69 weeks of years. And you arrive, according to the, to the prophet, you arrive at the cutting off of Messiah the Prince. Do you see that? Cutting off of Messiah the Prince. This may be a reference to the crucifixion. This may be a reference to the events of Palm Sunday. There is good evidence in both places. You can try to do the math on your own. I refer you, I think I put it in your notes. So Robert Anderson, Harold Honer have both done really good work in this area. You can figure it out on your own and decide. But it's a specific prophecy of the refusal of Messiah at his first coming. That refusal either occurs Palm Sunday or it occurs at the crucifixion and you can do the math. Following Messiah's being cut off, verse 26, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now we know historically that happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Thus, the prince who is to come 
is the one who arises out of the Roman Empire. He is, they are, the city is destroyed by the people, not by the prince, by the people. You see in verse 26, of the prince who is to come. That is the coming prince. The Romans are the ones who destroyed the city. The prince who is to come will be from those people, from the Romans. He will be the future ruler of the revived Roman Empire, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. He's back. He's back. At that point, the prophecy moves forward in time in verse 27 and skips over a massive period of time to arrive at Daniel's 70th week. 69 weeks have been accounted for, and the events have all historically happened. The 70th week is still prophetic and still awaiting fulfillment. And there is a vast period of time that occurs between the end of the 69th week and the 70th week. You and I are living in the midst of this period of time between 69th and 70th week of Daniel. Verse 27, and he... Who's the antecedent of the pronoun he? It is the prince to come. And he, the prince, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Now that ought to be familiar to your ears by now. The description of, of the covenant as firm... He will make a firm covenant, uses an unusual Hebrew verb. It implies that the covenant will be forced upon the nation by means of superior strength. It will be a firm covenant. It will be a strong covenant. The idea, I think, being communicated by this is that the nation of Israel will be forced to receive or accept a peace treaty, a covenant. Someone will force upon the nation of Israel a peace treaty. That peace treaty, and we'll see further next week and following, we will see further information about that. That peace treaty provides for their security. Someone steps forward, someone who arises out of the revived Roman Empire, someone who is leader of that revived Roman Empire, which, by the way, is Europe. This Antichrist will force upon the nation of Israel a peace treaty that they, will, that they will have to sign. And the terms of the treaty are that he and Europe will provide for their military safety. Halfway through, verse 27, you see in the middle of the week, after three and a half years, this This leader, this man, the Antichrist, he breaks the treaty and he begins to abolish Jewish activities and religions and he he defiles the temple. See, he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He defiles the temple in an act, again, that Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. Yet to come. Pictured earlier in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, Daniel chapter 8, historically happened. Learn from this. It's going to happen again in a bigger way. According to 2 Thess 2, verse 4, the Antichrist enters the temple in Jerusalem. He declares himself to be God and he requires everyone to worship him. That's what Paul says. 2 Thess 2, verse 4. Check it out on your own. You can also go to Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 8 through verse 18 
where there mandatory worship of Antichrist is required. All who will not worship him will be slayed. They will have to receive a sign of the beast, 666, in order to buy and sell. He will exert his dominion over the world. Notice, by the way, just a passing observation. He will put an end to sacrifice and grain offering, verse 27. The temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. The temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 42 is very, very clear about that. There is another temple to be rebuilt. At this point, I'm willing to speculate a little, so I'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll do it. I think Antichrist figures out how to retain the Dome of the Rock and build the Jewish temple. I know you've heard that one has to be destroyed for the other to be built, but I've been talking to some people, and they're not so convinced. They're not so convinced that the Holy of Holies actually lies under the Dome of the Rock, that it might actually be outside on the Temple Mount itself. If that's true, and these are credible people, if that's true, theoretically you could build the new temple right next to the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock would sit in what is normally known as the Court of the Gentiles in the Revised Temple. If that's true, maybe that's how the Gordian knot is cut and peace is brought to the Middle East. I don't know. But it's interesting to think about. We learn as well, verse, the end of verse 27, that the reign of Antichrist lasts only as long as God will allow it, seven years. And then his destruction is brought about by decree, divine decree, his complete destruction, one that is decreed. God brings about the destruction of Antichrist with the return of Jesus Christ. At the moment necessary to rescue his people, at the end of the battle of Armageddon. So where do we go from here? As we study these prophecies, we see their historical fulfillment in the past. We gain increasing confidence about their reliability for the future. Isn't that true? I mean, they've, think how detailed they've come to pass. Think how detailed they've come to pass. And realize that they will come to pass in the future just as detailed. This world is not out of control. It is a pressure cooker. And the internal pressure is rising and, and something has to happen or it will explode. But it is not out of control. What is increasingly clear to me, as I study through these, is that the world is absolutely on a prophetic timetable that is driving relentlessly towards the return of Jesus Christ. And that's exciting. That's exciting. And it's my hope, my hope for this whole summer series, is that as we continue to study these chapters, and I admit they're difficult, and I thank you for working hard to follow along, But my hope is that as we increasingly study this and we increasingly come to understand what God is revealing to us here, that we will be inspired and motivated to live in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. 
Beloved, we don't know how much time we've got. But if you look around, you would have to conclude that it appears to be pretty short. Amen? Well, if it's going to be pretty short, then let's order our lives in light of that reality. Let's look for the blessed hope. Let's look for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ for his church, for his people. And let's stop investing in this world and increase our investment in the next. Let me pray. Our Father, may you use your word to motivate your people. Not to increase our knowledge so that we would be puffed up, But our Father, to refocus our minds and our hearts. We confess that the things of this world pull on us daily. Whether it be the rampant materialism of our culture, whether it be the entertainment that assaults us in every direction, whether it be the, the difficulties of age and disease. These and many, many more, our Father, seek to pull our eyes to the the here and now and cause our vision of glory to be dimmed. May you use these prophetic studies this summer to enable us to raise our eyes, to look for our Redeemer, for His return, for the blessed hope. May we mount up on wings like eagles. May we run and not grow weary. May we preach the gospel boldly. For our Father, we are absolutely persuaded that time is short. Glorify yourself in your people now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.